You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello and welcome to Chthonia, the podcast dealing with the Dark Feminine. Uh, I'm your host, Breach Burke. This week we are going to, we're nearly at the end of our list of matricas. Actually, we're at the seventh, um, the traditional seven. Uh, and we are going to talk about Varahi, who is a boar-headed goddess. Um, and just as we had indicated that many of the other goddesses, um, of the Shaktis, I guess, the other matricas, are manifestations of, um, of other deities. So, for instance, Maheshwari is um, a Shakti of Shiva. Um, and then we have Brahmi, who is the, ma- uh, the Shakti of Brahma. And then we have Vaishnavi, who is the Shakti of Vishnu. Well, Vishnu, these, these next two that we're going to talk about, because remember we're talking about eight matrikas, we're adding Narasimhi as the eighth, are both um, sort of female forms of the avatars of Vishnu, at least two of them. And um, Varahi is the female form of Varaha, okay, um, who is a... Um, who is a form of Vishnu that, that Vishnu takes as a boar. Now, let me, uh, I'm going to, what I want to talk about, uh, I want to tell you a little about Varahi, and then, of course, about the story of Varaha, because that is, um, that tells you something about how that particular avatar uh, came into being and why. And then we're going to talk about um, the, um, the different symbolisms there. Um, now, as a matrika, uh, Varahi is considered to be the most ferocious out of all of them. Because um, she, you know, the others fight usually with weapons. Now, Varahi, like Vaishnavi, has a discus, which is Lord Vishnu's weapon. Which, as we noted in the last podcast, has a lot to do with... Um, it really does have to do with death. Because a lot of it has to do with time and the associations of time. And, and the you know, the, the continual um, cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. So, we have this... Um, this is this is Vishnu's weapon, and remember, Vishnu is the preserver. So as as Vishnu is um, doing, you know, so so in the act of preserving, obviously, um, the you know uh, life and the universe sustaining it, um, one is eventually liberated from this uh, through moksha. Uh, they get off this wheel, which is called samsara. Uh, but um, in the meantime, there's you know this is life is something to be lived. So, you know, you know, one, one goes through life, and at some point, though, life comes to an end. Um, and so the death motif is here is, you know, when you have something that has um, you know, outgrown its form or outlived its usefulness or, you know, just has somehow, you know, very much out of balance, um, this is, you know, this is the one weapon, um, this weapon of time, the idea that, you know, when you're talking about um, devas battling ashuras, ashuras are... Um, they're not immortal, so uh, this is almost a reminder from the gods of their um, lack of immortality and their, you know, and to basically, you know, detach them by detaching their heads, which of course is a way of detaching the mind, as it were, um, by making them, you know, it, it's it's it, this this aware of time and aware of the fact that no, you're not going to live forever. Um, you know, and, and you, you are, you are going to still have to go through this cycle and what goes up must come down and actions have consequences and so forth. So we have this, you know, so this, this idea is prevalent in the idea of Vishnu. So what we're going to want to talk about with Varahi, we're going to tell her, you know, we're going to talk about her story. We're going to talk about Varaha uh, as an avatar and then certain symbolisms that are associated here. Um, again, the idea of the boar or the sow, which is, you know, again, which, you know, Varahi has a head of a boar. So that is, that is extremely, um, that, that is like what I would call almost a universal symbol having to do with death and rebirth. And we'll talk about that. Um, the idea of pervasiveness, because, um, both Vaishnavi and Varahi, they both, they both have to do with the energy that pervades everything. In that way, they're related to almost to Bhuvaneshwari, the uh, the uh, Mahavidya, because there's this idea of this is this is you know represents this power that pervades everything, the consciousness that pervades everything, even rocks, you know, everything. And you know, and and, and along with the pervasiveness preservation aspect, we're going to talk about the vice of uh, Vahari Varahi. Sorry, I keep I keep wanting to say that wrong. 
um, varahi is uh, is the vice of envy, okay, which is the reverse of the one of uh, Vaishnavi. Vaishnavi, of course, is vice is greed, which is wanting to keep, you know, miserly, kind of keeping what one has. Um, whereas the envy one means desiring something that somebody else has, what the Bible would call covetousness, you know, you know do not covet thy neighbor's goods or wife, right? That's, that's envy, um, trying to take, you know, wanting to take from something from somebody um, that does not belong to you or that, you know, you, you compare, you know, comparison and so forth, the things that we do that are all connected to envy. So this is, this is the vice of um, uh, Varahi, and also, it's, and, and again, it's not only the vice that they represent, but also the vice that they can help the devotee overcome. Uh, the other important association that we're going to talk about is the association with the underworld, okay? Because all the matrikas, to some degree, are associated with the underworld. Um, in Ferocious, um, they actually mention, this is, again, just to backtrack, if you haven't heard the previous podcast, Ferocious is a book that was put out by Theon Press by uh, the Sepulchre Society to talk about, um, you know, that talks about tantric practice, um, more like Western tantric practice. It, it talks about the matrikas, and about the ways in which you know the the modern practitioner can can worship them. It's very it's an excellent book if if you're interested in tantra in a practical way. And it's you know not not just about the uh, you know sexual gratification part of it or whatever that most people associate with tantra. Um, this is an excellent book for you know practically understanding you know how shrines are built and and how. Um, how you know and what kind of offerings are appropriate for these deities. Their mantras, their dhyanams, you know all these things. So it's a very it's it's very it's very useful um, for somebody who's interested in tantra. Um, so you have this idea. Okay, so they mention the fact that um, the matrikas, after they do battle in the Devi Mahatmayam, that they the gods actually don't let them come back to the heavens. They send them to the underworld called uh, Patala, um, which is one of the lowest regions. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Um, those are where my patrons will actually, this might be a reason, if, if this topic interests you, this might be a reason to consider becoming a patron because these are kinds of extras that I want to provide. Uh, I'm going to have a patron-only podcast on the Hindu underworld. So, you know, that, you know, that will be, that will be upcoming. Um, and it, you know, and I'm going to, you know, so, you know, so if, if that's something that interests you, um, you know, and, and also I'm going to, I'm going to also be trying to come up with some, uh, some patron only podcasts just to have, uh, you know, because I feel like with my patrons, it's like they have early access to things, but they don't, but I haven't necessarily had the kinds of materials. I've had some giveaways, but on the whole, I, I feel like there should be some more extra content. So I'm going to be providing that. And that is one, one piece of extra content. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, um, consider becoming a patron. Uh, okay. Not to digress. But there is this association because um, Varahi is also sometimes called Yami, which would make her the Shakti or the spouse of Yama, the Lord of the Dead, uh, the Death God. Um, and her mount is usually sometimes she's shown on an elephant, but you know, which, which would associate her more with Vishnu's spouse Lakshmi. Um, but also she is mainly she's also shown riding a water buffalo. The buffalo is the mount of Lord Yama. And the buffalo, as we know, is also the form taken by the Mahisashura, the great, the great demon that um, Durga battles. So the buffalo, the buffalo definitely has this this death association um, in Hindu symbolism. So we're going to talk about all of those things. Um, the okay, so let's just start by talking about Varahi in general. Okay. Um, Okay, so I'm just going to read just, you know, it's just sort of a general description from looking at Wikipedia here. Um, she has the head of a sow. She's the feminine energy of Varaha, the boar avatar of the god Vishnu. And in Nepal, she's called Barahi. Uh, she's worshipped in the, um, shi uh, in the shi Shaivism school. She's worshipped um, in Brahmanism and also in Shaktism. Okay, so she is in, she's actually worshipped in all of those cults. Usually worshipped at night using the secretive um, Vama Marga or um, Vamachara um, tantric rituals, okay? And um, there is actually, uh, the Tantra Raja actually does, 16th chapter of the Tantra Raja actually does explain um, what these rituals are. Um, and so, and she is also what they call, as they say in Ferocious, Arachri Devata, which is a night goddess, 
Okay, so her worship takes place after midnight. She is she is definitely associated with the night. Um, and again, she's a very uh, she's a protective goddess. Okay, um, just looking at my uh, my notes here. Um, you know, and and again, she deals with uh, you know she's she's one to help one overcome envy. Um, she's considered to be the mother of Tripura Sundari. Okay, um, and in some cases also the father. Yes, this gets rather complicated. Probably more, more than I want to get into in this particular podcast. But, um, but she, yes, she she represents the uh, the Varaha Purana states that Varahi represents potential to overcome the demon of envy. Uh, she's a grantor of boons who rules over the northern direction. Now this is interesting because if she's associated with Yama, the Lord of Death, that death is always associated with and the death god and the underworld. Are associated with the southern direction. Okay, the the underworld is in the south. Um, in in um, in our thinking, in uh, the Near East and the and the West, uh, the underworld um, of say the Babylonians, the Sumerians, Greeks, Romans tends to be represented as a place in the west. Because if you think about where the the sun sets, um, but in in India, it's considered to be in the south. Uh, and also, I think Buddhism has a very similar concept. Uh, she, uh, okay, yes, the activating force of Lord Yama, um, connected anatomically to the skull, a symbol which reflects her realm and the transformation of the intellect. Um, okay, and just see what else they have here. Um, okay, so those are, those are some of the, <clears throat> uh, there's, there are, there are other tantric associations with her as well. Um, she has a, as, it, as it's stated in the um, Tantaraja, uh, or at least in the explanation that, that I have of it, um, <clears throat> Varahi is a Bali, or animal sacrifice devata, one of Lalita's receivers of offerings. Her four alchemical elements are known as the four fires. Um, okay, Kurukula, she's associated with Kurukula. If you remember from the uh, Tara episode, Kurukula was one of the names listed of Tara, who's the goddess of the cremation fire. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a, uh, this idea of, um, you know, rebirth and destruction and rebirth, um, you know, manifest in Kurukula. So, uh, Varahi is also considered to be associated with Kurukula. Um, these alchemical elements are known as the five Shaktis. The combination of these five Shaktis, which are downward pointing triangles, they represent the Yoni. Okay. And the four fires, which are the upward pointing triangles that would... Uh, represent um, probably be more phallic in their uh, association forms the complex figure in the center of the Sri Chakra. Okay, remember I did a podcast on the Sri Chakra, so you could go if you're not sure about that what that is. You know, you might want to go back and refresh yourself with that. Varahi's four are the twelve Sankalas, twelve sidereal, sidereal constellations. Kurukula's five triangles are the fifteen Kalas of the Moon, the fifteen lunar days. Okay, so. Again, we have this idea of, you know, uh, this creative energy, um, but you also have this energy associated with the sun and the moon and the, their sort of um, comparative cycles, if you will. So uh, very much, you know, very much I would think associated with the, um, the idea, you know, the idea of preservation, okay? Um, and it says they're both connected with the 16 nityas, which represent the days of the moon plus uh, Lalita herself as Sodashi on the 16th day. Uh, Varahi is sometimes also known as Panchami, the fivefold one, and in that case is the quote-unquote father to Lalita, and the mother form being Kurukulu, Kurukula, um, gosh, I can't talk today, Kurukula Tara, Tara. Okay, and, okay, so we have that. Okay, so those are all my, my special notes on the, on the tantric aspects of Varahi. Um, in this general, back to this general kind of Wikipedia discussion, um, so they mentioned the, the story in the Devi Mahatmayam of how the, um, Durga battles, Shumba Nishumba and the Matrikas emanate from her. We've, I don't need to repeat that story for the hundredth time. We, we know that one. Um, so, um, in, in at least, um, again, we, we see Durga manifest the Matrikas and then absorb them back into herself. 
and it mentions here in the Vamana Purana, the Matrikas arise from different parts of the Divine Mother, Chandik, Mother Chandika, Chandika being the goddess in her angry form. And Varahi arises from the back of Chandika. Okay. Uh, the Mar Markandeya Purana praises Vara Varahi as a grantor of boons in the region of the northern direction. Um, where in him, where the Matrikas are also considered to be elemental, they are the, um, the the guardians of the of the directions. And anybody who practices any kind of magic or witchcraft or anything knows about um, you know guardians of the four directions, right? So they they are sometimes um, uh, associated with that, which is not surprising because the Matrikas do kind of represent this um, this you know elemental consciousness or this elemental energy. You know, there's this connection to nature and, and the Earth Mothers. Uh, and we'll see that actually, especially with Vada, Varahi, with the boar symbolism. Um, okay, so um, they mention it in the uh, Varadaha Purana, the, they retell the story of Raktabija, the seed of desire, the demon that, you know, you, you can't be killed. Uh, basically, Kali or Chamunda or one of the um, manifestations has to drink up all the blood of Raktabija to keep him from multiplying. Uh, Varahi appears here seated on the Sheshanaga, the serpent on which the god Vishnu sleeps, from the posterior of Vaishnavi, the Shakti of Vishnu. And uh, yes, and they mention her association with envy. Um, okay, let me just see if I can find... Uh... Yeah, there's not a particular other particular story associated with her. So like a lot of the other Matrikas, she is identified uh, in these various places as, as this particular force, but not much else is said. Um, now, okay, uh, the iconography of Varahi, uh, she is described in the Tantric text, the Varahi Tantra, they say she has five forms, uh, Svatna Varahi, Chanda Varahi, Mahi Varahi, which is also Bervi, uh, Kricha Varahi, and Matsya Varahi, and the Matrikas, as the Shaktis, are described to resemble those gods in form, jewelry, and mount, but Varahi inherits only the boar face of Varaha. Everything else is different. She's usually depicted with a characteristic sow face on a human body with a black complexion comparable to a storm cloud. Um, says the scholar Donaldson informs us that the association of a sow and a woman is seen as derogatory for the latter, but the association is also used in curses to protect land from invaders, new rulers, and trespassers. So, okay, we're going to get into the sow symbolism in a moment. Rarely she is described as holding the earth on her tusk, similar to Varaha. Okay, she wears the uh, Karandam uh, Mukuta, a conical basket-shaped crown. Varahi can be depicted as standing, seated, or dancing. Varahi is often depicted as pot-bellied with full breasts, while most all other matrikas, except Chamunda, are depicted as slender and beautiful. Um, one belief suggests that since Varahi is identified with uh, the Yoganidra of Vishnu, who holds the universe in her womb, that she should be shown as pot-bellied. Um, okay, and so they said that might indicate a maternal aspect as well. And there are, there is a notable exception where they say there's a, uh, the Rameshvara cave, she's sometimes shown as human-faced and slender. Okay, she may be two, four, or six-armed. Uh, the Matsya Purana, um, the, there's a couple other ones too, they mention a four-armed form. Another, um, text says she carries a gantha, or bell, um, a yak's tail, a discus, and a mace. Um, and so she's, you know, she's got various weapons that she is associated with. And probably also the discus and some of them, and the mace. Maces, they're certainly associated with Varaha. Um, now let's, let's talk about, um, Varaha for a minute, because we don't, um, you know, that's, that's a story, okay, that, the story of Varaha, the avatar of, of Vishnu, it's considered, Varaha is considered to be the third avatar of Vishnu, because Vishnu appears in, um, takes a form on, on the earth at some point. Um, there's said to be, I want to say there's ten avatars of Vishnu, with the last one being Kalki, which is supposed to be the, the form that uh, he takes at the, at the end of the world. Which makes sense, because Kalki has as its root the word time, okay? So there's kind of this, like, this, this kind of end of time. Although... It is important to note that in Hinduism, there's really no such thing as the end of time. When we think about um, eschatological or apocalyptic things in um, Western religion, we think, just say, for example, the book of Revelation in the Bible, um, we think about, quote-unquote, the end of the world, right? 
and it seems to be, you know, and we talk about it as though it's like a linear event, like the world started and it went on this line and now it's going to end at this point. Like we think of it as some point in the future. Um, but that's not the way that um, Hindu thinking about the quote-unquote end of the world is because everything happens in yugas or cycles. These cycles go on perpetually. This is the eternal wheel that goes on, okay, that, that actually Vishnu's discus probably represents. The wheel goes on and on. So when, we, when you go through all of the yugas and get to the final one where things come to an end, and actually we're supposed to be in the final yuga now, which is the Kali yuga, um, when that comes to an end, then we begin another yuga and start all over again. So it's not, there's not this idea, and supposedly this has happened thousands and thousands and maybe millions of times, that this universe and this time frame we're in is just an infinitesimal uh, point in time, and that this has happened so more times than we can even comprehend. And it's interesting because, you know, again, if we get back into that idea of Hinduism and um, sort of uh, physics and quantum mechanics and, and, and those kinds of theories, um, that would be an interesting podcast. Uh, that would be, that's kind of a, yeah, there, there's, there you kind of get into this whole, um, you know, you, you see this idea of, you know, multiple universes and multiple existences and, um, you know, the ideas of infinity and ideas of coming out of nothingness. Cause I had read in one of my other podcasts, I had read from the Rig Veda translation about everything coming from nothing. We, we can't say where anything came from. So there's a lot, and, and again, if you're a Joseph Campbell fan, he has this whole um, lecture series. I want to I say it's called East Meets West. I have it downloaded somewhere. I'll have to, uh, I can hope, maybe I can provide a link to it somewhere. But, it's, but, the, but Campbell has a whole lecture series on East Meets West, and his high idea is that this was, certain, this was done in the 70s too, by the way. So remember, this was the time like after the 1960s when you started to see these kind of interests in Buddhism and... Um, and it's funny, too, when I, when I read literature from that time period, how um, Buddhism and Hinduism and Eastern belief is kind of lumped in with, um, you know, things, you know, general occultism and things like that, probably because of theosophy and, and some other, um, you know, well, even in the early 19th century, I'm, I'm going back and listening to a lot of old um, 19th and tw- early 20th century ghost stories, which are some of my favorite things. Um, I love I love Victorian and modern and early you know early contemporary early twentieth century uh, kind of ghost stories. You know, M. R. James is one of my favorites, and I like um, E. F. Benson, and um, you know even uh, you know people like even some people like Charles Dickens have some have some good ghost stories. Not all of them are good, to be honest, but some of them are really good. And uh, there's you know. Um, uh, Let's see, uh, E. Nesbitt. You know, there's quite a few of them that that, that write, and uh, J. Sheraton Le Fanu. There's a lot of good ghost stories out there, um, but it's it, so. But but again, they, and in those stories, they talk about these people who, um, you know, you know, so and so thought I was interested in the occult because of my moderate interest in Buddhism. You know, so there's you know, so that idea was there. And if you know about the history of Western magic, you know, certainly around that time, you know, when you have uh, Blavatsky and you have um, you know Crowley and you have some of these people where um, you see these Eastern practices being brought into Western um, occult practices. So, yeah, so that's, that's, that's one way that we see that connection. But Campbell talks about the connection of East and West in terms of, he, he talks about the fact, you know, the, the issues that we have with the Adam and Eve myth and the fact that, um, you know, there's people who literally believe that myth because they believe it's a matter of faith and they're supposed to, um, which, as I tell many students, whether they listen to me or not, is that, that's not how you're supposed to read that myth. And I've, I've, you know, maybe, maybe you say, oh, who am I to say how the myth's supposed to be read, right? But no, I mean, it, it's very, to me, to, to try to adopt the stance that, um, you know, that the world was created like five or 6,000 years ago, to me is like, same as like trying to say that Santa Claus is, you know, is, you know, is a real person um, and not like, you know, your parents or whatever hope nobody's kids are listening to this but you know what I mean it's like you know it's a very um you know the literal belief in it is actually quite silly however like I said there is a um a more subtle meaning to it having to do as I indicate with time and 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 death and space time and death and that kind of stuff that that is actually the more important aspect of that story that that has a truth but you'll see that um but Campbell has noted that uh Hindu and Buddhist 
mythologies tend to incorporate things that now as we do make more scientific discoveries about the nature of the universe, that they jive more in a literal sense with those scriptures than they do with the Western scriptures. So, um, you know, so, it, so these, these ideas of cycling, you know, endless cycling uh, and things, you know, expanding and retracting and, and turning, you know, it, it's, um, it's interesting to see some of those, those parallels and, you know, that, that, that's certainly an interesting topic worth exploring. Um, okay, but the story of Varaha. So what happens supposedly is that um, there is a demon who plunges, who, who takes, who steals the earth, uh, Budevi, and plunges it into the, um, the primordial waters of the underworld, uh, down by Patala. And so once the, when the earth disappears like this, the, the um, king and queen of the gods at that time, um, you know, uh, king and queen you know, of the earth, uh, Manu and his wife, you know, approach Brahma and say, where are we to live? There's no earth. Where are we? You know, the earth is underwater. And Brahma, of course, becomes very concerned. And, um, you know, he ends up, you know, the, you know out, of, out of his nose drops like a form of a boar, this boar, little tiny boar that suddenly springs up. And this is an avatar of uh, Vishnu, um, Varaha, who then comes and uses his great, you know, dives through the waters with his great boar tusks. He lifts the earth up and puts her back in uh, her place in the cosmos and then uh, does battle with the demon and kills the demon uh, with his mace, the one with his tusks and with his mace, the, the one that um, submerged the, the um, what you call it, which submerged the earth in the first place. So, you know, again, you have this idea. Now, think about, too, we had talked in, in the previous episode about flood mythology and the symbolism of water. Um, or maybe we talked about that. I'm trying to think. Maybe it might have been the Brahmi part, podcast that we mentioned that. But think about this, too. So the idea of the earth being replunged into primordial waters. Okay? So that's another, to me, that, that sounds almost like another, quote-unquote, flood myth. I mean, it's not, not quite, because it's not the idea of raining for... X number of days and nights and wiping the earth out. But there is this idea of being submerged, you know, regressing and submerging back into the primordial waters. Um, there was an article after Hurricane Sandy, there was an article, I used to have my students read it uh, from the New Yorker. Um, I can't remember the author's names. First name's Ari. I have to go back and, and, you know, go back to my teaching notes and find that particular article. But, you know, that. Yeah, but there was, but it was, it was a whole article about, after Sandy, about the reason, you know, the, the, the terrifying nature of water and the punitive nature, um, and also the, and also the political and economic nature of these stories about, um, flood and being rescued from flood and, and so forth. Um, but the idea is that, um, while fire, you know, utterly, you know, destroys or moves, you know, burns to ash, water causes things to regress. So it's almost like a return to the womb, you know, the Mother Earth returning to the womb, which is kind of interesting, returning to some kind of primordial state, and then having to be brought out of it again. Um, so in a sense, it's kind of like a rebirth motif of a kind. And uh, Varaha represents that. So therefore, if Varahi is the um, Shakti of Varaha, then, you know, then there, again, there's this idea of, um, of preserving, of preserving the, the, the place where the Earth is, of preserving, you know, the order of things. Okay, so she also has this uh, association, just like Vaishnavi. Now let's talk about the um, symbolism of the boar or the sow. Okay, now if you've studied mythology, I was I was um, sitting down and I was I was looking through not only through Campbell but through some other sources that I have, just trying to remind myself. I said, oh yeah, the boar and the sow. First of all, if you know anything about um, studied any of the Eleusian mysteries. Uh, the cult of Demeter or the cult of, of Dionysus, and partic particularly the cult of Demeter. Um, there's the, uh, you know, the, the sacrifice of a sow is always part of that. Like the, the, like the sow that represents the earth mother uh, is, is always connected um, to these ideas of death and rebirth. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a mythology about um, the city of, uh, I think, let me say now, I think it was the city of Thebes being founded um, by finding a, a sow with her, her, her piglets and then sacrificing that, that pig. Um, you know, that there's, there's, there's all these connections in Greek mythology. Um, you also have figures like Adonis, who are slain by a boar. You have uh, Heracles, who fights the, uh, 
Arithmanian and, uh, and Bohr, you know, and, and, and wrestles with it. Um, and then um, Campbell also mentions the idea of Odysseus ending up um, in the hut of a swineherd, of the swineherd, uh, in, um, in the Odyssey before, um, he, you know, as a beggar, before he goes in to reveal himself to his wife. So there's almost a rebirth motif there as well. And, um, Campbell has noted that the sow, uh, does tend to represent the earth mother. Um, probably, I haven't, I haven't looked at my Jung, but Jung would probably agree with that as well, because the, um, you know, because again, this idea of, um, blood and soil and earth and, and the sow itself, all tend to be associated with earth mothers and earth mother rights, not just anything happening potentially in India, but also throughout the Near East and um, in places like Greece and Rome. Um, so these mother goddess cults, they, they tend to have to do with blood, blood sacrifice, but they also have to do with, um, but the, yeah, the pig was considered to be um, the pig or the sow. And I realize pigs and boars are not exactly the same thing, but they certainly are connected. Um, that this, this sow image is definitely um, a representation of the power of the Earth Mother and the charging boar that, um, that destroys, the, destroys our hero is a reminder of, of the power of the, of the Shakti, of the feminine. Okay? It's a reminder of, you know, that, you know, of that power, you know, how ferocious that power can be. So, um, so Varahi becomes kind of a representation of this. Um, the other thing... Um, they mentioned, I was, I was looking at the, they were talking about this symbolism in Ferocious as well, and they mentioned that, you know, the danger, how dangerous um, that it can be, can be very tough or fierce, and often tends to symbolize confrontation or conflict, you know, that the, the boar is a symbol of, you know, of confrontation with something, not of, not of avoidance or, or sidestepping it or going away from it. Um, and it's also, you noticed in many religions, not considered to be a clean or a wholesome creature. Um, certainly in Judaism, there's um, an injunction against eating pork, uh, as there is in Islam. And there's the idea that um, the you know the, you know because the pig because because it eats carrion or the boar also does, um, and it, it you know it you know because they tend to be very dirty animals, they're considered to be sort of polluted or unclean uh, in their very nature. Um, even though pigs are actually really cute, um, you see people hanging out with their little pot-bellied pigs. And even the boars, even most boars, they say, you know, don't even bother people. They, they hide out in the forest and, um, you know, or they read occasional stories of like, you know, they, um, it was the one that broke into somebody's stash and, um, no, actually, no, the recent one was, uh, <laughs> breaking into someone's either meth or cocaine stash and, you know, now you've got this boar running around, you know, high on meth or on cocaine. I also thought I heard about another one. It might not have been a boar. It might have been, um, another animal that, that, that got in somebody's beer stash who was camping and got itself completely, like, wiped out drunk. But it might not have been a boar. might have been a different, might have been a bear or something like that. Anyway, that's, that's completely beside the point. Um, yeah, we have this idea of the boar as this very aggressive, charging energy. Um, there is that sense of uncleanliness, but it, but it really seems to be embedded in the whole idea of el a very elemental idea. It has to do with the earth. And again, its connection, it, its frequent connection to these kind of mystery rites um, as the sacrificial animal, uh, you know, indicates the, um, you know, the, the blood of the sow. This has a lot to do with uh, you know, you know, the, the, the earth mother symbolism is, and, and this, this, this sort of dark, bloody earth mother symbolism is very prevalent. And the fact that the boar is often the, um, the animal that kills many of the heroes. Okay. Um, we see this, uh, you know, in the hunting, hunting mythologies, certainly in Greece and Rome in particular. So, uh, yes, yeah, so the boar is considered to be um, a very dangerous animal, but it does represent, that is a very dark feminine animal, okay? So uh, it's, it's, a, it's an entirely appropriate representation, um, even though, now, now here's, here's something that's interesting. Let me, I, I have this written down here somewhere. Yeah, okay, because remember I've been reading a little bit from Chundi each podcast about, you know, what, what the, you know, the, the uh, scenes where the Matrikas appear and they're doing battle with the Ashuras, and there, and then of course this has been translated um, in my translation by Swami Satyananda Saraswati, and he translates um, Varahi as uh, the energy of the most excellent desire of union. 
which is, I thought was really, really kind of strange. Although it's worth noting that Varaha uh, supposedly marries the Earth Mother um, after, after rescuing her. And so that's interesting. You have the boar, boar-headed god marrying the Earth Goddess. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so you've got this, this association here of, of the two. Uh, yeah, where, you know, you have this, in a way it almost marries the underworld to the Earth in, in some, some kind of a, a strange way. Uh, so this this avatar of Vishnu uh, is you know it's it's rather complicated because it has to do with that kind of rebirth that comes from taking things out of the waters. Um, but you also have this this boar figure that, um, that 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 can represent that kind of aggressive confrontation. But it's it's there's something feminine about it. Um, and 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 as uh, Donaldson's pointed out, I mean yeah the. Um, that, you know, when you refer to, when you refer to pigs and you're talking about women, that's also a very derogatory term. Um, but, but you kind of are reminded of, of the the dirtier aspects of womanhood. You know, there's a lot about womanhood that is very unclean. Um, you know, menstruation being the thing that comes to mind immediately. And of course, sows also do tend to be associated with the moon and the cycles of the moon. So... You know, and then the blood element too. So there's kind of this, yeah, this this um, mixed up in all these things about the feminine that people might find revolting in some ways, uh, because they are revolting actually. Um, you know, and it's you know, I mean, it doesn't matter. I'm sorry. You know, women who go through it every month, it's just like, you know, or you know, it's it's just one of those things where it, it just like you know, it, I mean, you deal with it because because it is what it is, but. Um, it's 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 hardly something that you look forward to or that is pleasant in in any fashion, not simply because of the blood. Um, so, anyway, so there's this desire of union that, that comes from Varahi, and Varahi has sometimes been said to be associated with you know the fact that she's both anim- she has both animal and um, human. We'll say human like. I don't want to say humanoid, but human like attributes in the way that the gods do. Because the gods don't really look like humans. I mean, no human has, like, 12 arms. I mean, you know, it's just not... That's not how... You know, and three eyes, you know, or whatever. It doesn't... It doesn't... They don't, humans don't look like that. But they have an image that's close enough to a human that we can identify them in some fashion as being human-like. So she's both human-like and she's animal-like. So there's a suggestion there of balance. Um, I also thought about this when I was making my notes for the next podcast on Nada Sydney. It was like, you know, I'm kind of reminded of Baphomet. Uh, who is the uh, you know, who's frequently seen as a Satan image in the West? But Baphomet actually represents uh, different possibilities of incarnation. It's got a goat head and kind of a you know and, and a phallus and kind of a mass you know goat legs, but also has female breasts and also has other attributes that are human. You know, makes the mudras for light and dark. Um, you know, salve coagula on the arms. I mean, there's this definite idea, and you see dark and light in the image. So it's a rep- that representation of balance and of um, balance and possibility in the incarnated world. So to me, that's kind of a very similar idea when you have these kind of animal-slash-human-like um, hybrid um, gods or spirits or deities. Uh, it, it's showing the connection to nature and the natural world and, and that, that vital force uh, and consciousness. But it also is talking about that energy kind of being in harmony or balance with everything else. Okay. All right, so... Having said that, um, let's talk about the idea of preservation for a minute. Um, let me just uh, put my book aside here. Uh, pre- you know, the idea of pervasiveness and preservation. Okay, again, if we're talking about a nature goddess, um, then you're talking about an energy that pervades everything. In the West, we're very used to thinking about the gods or about God as something transcendent because the god of the West is you know, has become El, uh, later known as Yahweh, okay? And, you know, and yes, El was a Canaanite god, and Yahweh is certainly, in some fashion, comes from El. Uh, certainly in the early um, texts within the Torahs and the Psalms and everything, you know, you know, you know El Shaddai, Elohim, you know, the Lord is, inter- quote-unquote, is interpreted as El, and El, of course, is a, is a distant god. You know, he's pictured as a god sitting away from everything in his tent. So we're used to this idea of a god that is, you know, away from everything, but kind of watching over everything. This is a reminder that that kind of, 
vital divine energy of consciousness that we share with everything is permeates everything, okay? It's not separate. The mind tries to separate it out. And, uh, you know, when, so when you talk about this vicious attack by a, a boar-headed goddess, it's reminding you of the, the consciousness that's embedded in nature. You know, nature is not some separate corrupted thing, as the Adam and Eve story would have us believe. Na you are nature. You are in nature. And nature is just as sacred. Everything in nature is to be respected. So there's definitely this idea of... Um, you know, and, and that may also be the idea of the energy of the most excellent desire of union. You know, the idea of, you know, not regarding yourself as separate from that. That that's one great illusion which needs its head lopped off is the idea of separateness. Um, I mean, we, we function as though everything's separate. We can't, if we, if we walked around with a, with a perception that everything was the same, it would be, that would be just crazy. Um, you know, there's a reason for that, that separate perception. But you just have to recognize that beyond that, there, is, um, there isn't a separation. We can take that separation too far, and we can really isolate ourselves from people. We can think that our actions don't affect other people, um, <clears throat> all of you non-mask-wearing people, um, during COVID. Sorry, don't mean to throw a, uh, you know, actually, it's not a political point. It's a public health one. People make it into something political. But it becomes more about me, and I don't care how this affects anybody else. Well, yes, all of your, your actions affect other people, and that is the problem here. If it just affected you, and you were going to drop dead from COVID from not wearing a mask, you know what? Honestly, if you want to drop dead, that's, that's your, your issue. Um, however, unfortunately, your actions may also cause somebody who does, you know, who has been tried to be careful, um, or tried to avoid this, you know, you could make that person sick and you could kill them, uh, just because of your careless action. So it's not, it, bottom line is it's not, this is not about you, um, about your inconvenience. This is about, this is, this is an issue about, we all have to take the same action in order to help each other and to keep each other safe. So, um, you know, that's an example, that's kind of a very mundane social ethical example of, um, you know, where, where we tend to try to see ourselves as very separate when in fact you're, you're not separate and your actions are not separate. I feel like that's one of the lessons of COVID, if there is any lessons to be learned. I'm sure there's plenty of lessons to be learned, but it's the idea that um, you, you, don't, you don't exist in this island by yourself, this individualism thing. I mean, yeah, okay, there, there's, there's aspects of individualism that are, that are worth pursuing, you know, yeah, pursuing all your own talents and, you know, not being forced into uh, situations that you're not interested in, but, um, you know, jobs and things, you know, of course people do that anyway. But, you know, this is not just about being a cog in the machine. I understand that aspect of individualism is very good. But this attitude of like, F you, you know, my actions, you know, I, I don't, I'm going to do what I want. I don't care how it affects you. Um, that, that's going to have its consequences. Um, and like I said, the way, the way that I wish it is I hope I want the consequences to fall squarely on the people who are the perpetrators and not anybody else. That's, that's, that's my wish for you. Because I'm saying, okay, if your attitude is I don't give a crap, okay, then you don't give a crap. But, you know, as long, if, 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 you know, if it kills you and nobody else... <laughs> sayonara um anyway okay i'm sorry i'm gonna get myself annoyed about that so i'm gonna gonna pass by uh gonna keep going past that and it brings us to the idea of death okay the idea of varahi as the um you know the spouse or shakti or counterpart of lord yama the lord of death now again they both ride the mount of the buffalo uh the water buffalo which again is this kind of big charging kind of an animal uh and you know, and and again, it tends to be associated with um, with death and with the underworld. And we see, like I said, the the greatest of demons. The demons tend to be associated with, or the asuras in Hinduism, um, with these kinds of um, qualities that are related to death because because the, because they do represent temporality. They do represent the kinds of sufferings that we have that uh, make us forget the connection that we have. Um, you might call it the connection that we have to the divine, or maybe just makes you forget, um, ma makes you get too, you know, you, you get too caught up in your head and you don't allow life to just flow through you. Okay. Um, and so therefore, in some ways, even when you're alive, you're dead. So we, we have this kind of association. Um, now, okay, the, the, the notion of the matrikas 
living in the underworld. Now, let, I'm just going to talk for a minute about the underworld. I actually, I'm going to, like I said, for my patrons, I'm going to do a separate podcast on the Hindu underworld. But just to tell you a little bit about Patala, which is where the Matrikas are supposed to go to live. Um, now, the different Puranas give different versions of what Patala is like. Um, now, mind you, this is, um, <clears throat> it's, the, it's the seven lower regions underneath the earth. And they are referred to as Bilas Fargas, which means subterranean heavens. So these are not bad places. Uh, and they are regarded, uh, at least in the Bhagavata Purana, as planets or planetary systems below the earth. They're described as being more op opulent than the upper heavenly regions of the universe. Life here is a pleasure, wealth, luxury with no distress. The architect uh, Maya has constructed palaces, temples, houses, yards, and hotels for foreigners with jewels. The natural beauty of Patala is said to surpass that of Sfarga, which is heaven. There is no sunlight in the lower realms, but the darkness is dissipated by the shining of the jewels that the residents wear. There's no old age, no sweat, and no disease. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, now, and, and of course, they're also considered to be ruled over by um, Nagas, which are serpents. Um, so you have, now that's another uh, thing that I find interesting. Um, whenever we talk about the Chthonic realm, uh, that is often represented, and that this is true in ancient Greece and in other places as well, as a serpent. If you see uh, images, for example, of Zeus Chthonios, um, that's Zeus sort of portrayed as a serpent. When you look at images of the household gods, and um, th th there's one mural from um, probably from Pompeii with the household gods, and underneath the feet of the house are the serpents. The serpents are associated with that because they're kind of with associated with that primal elemental life force that both that dies and it appears to die and be reborn namely because the snake um sheds its skin so it's it's kind of so it gives it almost a lunar association you know the, the the shedding of the skin is like the shedding of the moon's shadow um i think that's how campbell had put it in um power of myth but that's um so there's this uh this idea of the serpent as sort of these you know it has to do with with life on this earth and and you know, related to life, um, <clears throat> but not, not considered to be, you know, considered to be a sacred animal, not considered to be a negative, you know, as Vishnu sleeps on the back of a serpent, okay? Um, Shiva has serpent coiled in his hair, you know, and on the, you know, there's the, 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 the serpent that he wears around his neck and around his head. Snakes are not considered to be evil, although, you know, there, there are some, as we discussed uh, with uh, Vaishnavi and Garuda, you know, there are, you know, they're, they're you know, the, the, the sort of the golden eagle ends up being the enemy of the snake. Um, by the way, I think I mentioned that in the last podcast about um, the Iliad mentioning an episode with a serpent, and I actually had to go look for it. Um, yeah, this was in the Iliad. This is in book 12. Um, so they, oh yes, here we go. He says, uh, while the Lapiths stripped their, their kills of gleaming gear, the fighters trooping behind Polydamus and Hector, the greatest force, the best and the bravest, grim set above all to breach the wall and torch the ships. Okay, this was the wall that the Achaeans put up against the Trojans. Uh, still hauled up at the trench, torn with doubt, for suddenly, just as the men tried to cross, a fatal bird sign flashed before their eyes. An eagle, flying high on the left across their front and clutching a monstrous bloody serpent in both talons, still alive, still struggling, it had not lost the fight, writhing back to strike its fanged, to strike it fanged the chest of its captor right beside the throat, and agonized by the bites, the eagle flung it away to earth, dashed down among the midst the milling fighters, loosed a shriek, and the bird veered off along the gusting wind. Okay. And this was seen as a sign from storming Zeus. Polydamus stood by headstrong Hector and said, Hector, you always seem to attack me in assembly despite my good advice. Never right is it for a common man to speak against you. Never an open counsel, and God forbid in war. Well, once again, I am bound to say what I think is best. Stop the attack, don't fight these ships, as all will end as the omen says, I do believe. If the bird sign really came to us, the Trojans, just as our fighters tried to cross the, the trench, um came to us, the Trojans, just as our fighters tried to cross the trench. That eagle flying high on the left um that eagle flying high on the left across our front, clutching the bloody serpent in its talons, still alive, but he let the monster drop once before he could sweep it back to his own home. He never fed his nestlings in the end, nor will we. Okay, so that's considered to be an omen of um, you know, you're gonna engage in this struggle and you're not gonna win. So 
Um, but, but it's interesting that you have the eagle and the serpent again, and you have this idea. Uh, and eagles are, are predators. Um, they can be predatory. Uh, but, but the idea of the, um, the bloody snake uh, as an omen. So we see, so this is, you know, so again, this idea of the, the bird um, attacking the snakes. And, and the patalas um, are definitely, they said they're ruled over by, they said snake people and um, cobras with sort of giant hoods. But they're all glistening with jewels. Now, why would that be? Well, I mean, that's, in a way, that's almost obvious because if um, we think about names that we have, like the Roman name Pluto, which at least one derivation of that is Pluton, which is the word for wealth, okay? And, you know, the wealth of, um, you know, because, cause the, cause again, wealth is underground, where you get jewels and gold and, and things that we use as valuable money and things for exchange, you dig them up from the earth. They're from under the earth. So it stands to reason that they're saying, yes, the, the under part of the earth is glittering with jewels. So that, that does make sense. Okay, so I wanted to mention that. And certainly her association with the sow or the boar, you know, the boar head, um, you know, in addition to that sort of avatara association would definitely also be a strong connector uh, to the underworld. And the, also the alternate name, Yami. So here we're looking at really, um, yes, she is the uh, the sort of shadow or, or female side of Varaha, um, you know, the boar god, and, and has some of those attributes, but also seems to have, it also concurrently has aspects of the death god. Okay, so you have the preserver, and to a certain degree, you have this idea of destruction or death, or at least the end of a cycle and the beginning of a new one. Um, the idea of um, rescuing from a flood or, um, you know, and then the idea, too, of, um, you know, the boar who attacks, because that is how Varahi, uh, you know, go gets on in battle. She, she does have a discus, but she basically attacks with her tusks. So it's very, again, it's this similar idea of this, this very confrontational female energy. So this is showing us that feminine energy is not, not simply what we think of in the yin and yang. It's not what um, we, you know, it's not this kind of weak, passive, maybe um, emotional kind of energy. I mean, it is emotional, but these, these are emotions of rage. And rage is something we tend to associate with the masculine. Um, I, actually can, I actually associate it heavily with the repressed masculine, with the masculine that is um, kind of made powerless or feels powerless in the face of the feminine, uh, usually deals with things with rage and force. So, uh, you know, and, and a lot of times when you see these, this is a kind of a case of fighting fire with fire here. We have a lot of fire symbolism in these goddesses too. So... Um, Okay, I had a note here to look at something here in um, uh, Okay, yeah, the other the other um, weapon or you know associated with weapon if you you know it's not really a weapon associated with Varahi is the plow. Now the plow of course is what we use to till the earth and to harvest, but as they point out in Ferocious, they're saying this is more like she's using it to just mow down her enemies. Um, rather than engaging them as opponents, she's just mowing you down. Which also has this very, um, uh, you know, uh, I don't know how to put it. Um, it it's definitely has this kind of gruesome, bloody sacrifice element to it. Um, and he may mention here, it is interesting that Varahi is associated partially with the elephant and partially with the buffalo. And the explanation behind this is that there are divergent traditions of Varahi's origins. The elephant is a Vaishnava device since Varahi is the Shakti of Varaha, at least nominally, and then by extension associated to Lakshmi, whose animal is the elephant. Um, but as they said, another tradition conflates her with, here with Yami, the Shakti of Lord Yama, whose vahana is the buffalo, hence the confusion about her vehicle. So she tends to kind of have, um, have both of those elements. Um, okay, so I think that's most of what I want to say about her. Uh, the vice of envy, too. I, I, I talk a little bit about that. Envy, again, there's this idea of trying to take what's not yours. And that may have to do with the fact that as a boar, you have this kind of devouring elements. Because, you know, boars, they're kind of like goats. They'll like just eat up anything. They eat up garbage. They eat up whatever. Um, so, you know, that, that, that consuming element may be part of it. But it just may also, between Vaishnavi and Varahi, you may have this idea, you know, the um, greed and envy kind of axis there. 
um, and it has to do with the idea of attachment to stuff. That's the negative aspect of this, the idea that one becomes attached to stuff, that that's where the, um, uh, the suffering gets in, that's where the mind takes control, that's where we have obsessions that we, we shouldn't have. So um, just a couple other things I want to mention. Um, Ferocious also mentions that Varahi might have originally been a cannibal goddess, which also might explain some of these associations. Um, and I also make a note here. She is, she presides, okay, they you know how they each of the matrikas, at least the first seven, uh, preside over a graha or our planet. Uh, she resides over Rahu, which is like the north node of the moon. It's the head of the, the demon that's cut in half. Uh, has no body, but it has a head. So very good for creative and intellectual things, but also can mean sometimes that one has overbearing pride or ego. So, um especially those with Rahu in the first house, uh, that can be, that can be something problematic. But Rahu does, does, you know, um, does have that kind of, uh, fuel, although both Rahu and Ketu are not considered to be particularly auspicious, um, in the chart, but they do have their things, because Ketu tends to be, as I said, associated more with liberation, um, so then Rahu would have more to do with creating things and building things in the world, so it, it makes sense that that would be more of the, the preservation aspect. Um, and I also just kind of make a note here that I think it's interesting that the Shaktis or the female powers, the Matrikas, uh, after their battle are confined to the underworld. Okay. Even though it's a beautiful underworld, rich and abundant, um, you know, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of psychological symbolism to that, to the idea that, um, that pure power of consciousness is kind of locked up or put away or hidden, you know, or becomes quote unquote a cult. Um, where you have traditions like like Tantra that um, you know that 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 get into those mysteries and uncover them, but they're no longer they're no longer either on the surface or in the sky. They're they're now um, kind of locked away somewhere under the earth with the serpents and the powers of the serpents. Um, but again, that not not to be assu um, to assume that that means like oh they've they've been banished to hell or to Tartarus or. Um, I mean, there is there is a Hindu um, quote unquote hell called uh, Naraka um, that again, even though there's this idea of souls being judged by Lord Yama and Naraka, it's that's more of a social and political thing. It's not something you really see believed in in Hinduism as such. So um, you have this so you have this idea of the Matrikas as becoming, you know, in a way like Hecates, they become sort of these dark mothers that illuminate truths. Um, in the underworld, in the darkness, um, just as in Jungian thought, these would all be things that are part of the uh, collective unconscious, these, these archetypal things that we never know directly, but that only um, we only learn about them through their inflection. Okay, so that's enough on this topic. Uh, I have one more on the Matrikas, and then I'm going to be moving back to, um, going to have a special Morrigan episode for Halloween. I did a Morrigan episode last year, but this will be just me and not, not an interview like I had last year. And then I'm going to be covering probably some Egyptian goddesses between now and the end of the year, including Sekhmet, who is um, going to be very much like the next goddess we're talking about, Narasimi or um, Pratinagira. Um, I hope I'm saying her name right because the spelling of it's a little, a little odd, so I always have to look at it. But we will be talking about that next week. Um, like I said, um, if you're interested you know, in some of the extra material I'm going to start putting out, please consider joining patreon.com slash chthonia to, uh, you know, become a regular patron. Um, you know, if, uh, if not, you know, if you like this podcast, please leave a review, um, you know, on, on your podcast, you know, um, podcast, uh, you know, app of choice and, you know, um, check out chthonia.net, which is where I have my, you know, all the pod, you can have links to all the podcasts, um, that you can listen to on your computer and also to my other uh, creative work and some other things uh, related to this concept. Um, for my more practical work, uh, hands-on kind of healing work, and um, also tarot and other things that I do, um, please visit liminalreiki.com. And if you just want to follow me on social media, follow me on Chthonia on YouTube, uh, subscribe, press the bell notification. And in Facebook, it's Chthonia Podcast, two words. And it's also Chthonia Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, but that's just one word. So... Uh, and the reason these are all different is because, you know, I, I had issues with those um, different, um, I, I had issues, man, trying to make them separate 
uh, in, in certainly on Twitter and Instagram. So that's why everything is, is kind of different there. So uh, not, not to confuse people. Uh, okay, so that's it for me this time. I want to thank you all very much again for listening, and uh, till the next episode.